Most of us have heard of the website that was designed to help spouses meet someone to have an affair with. You remember the slogan of this uh, uh, website? Life is short, have an affair, and millions and millions and millions of people signed up. They were promised confidentiality. They could keep their extramarital activities. Well, they could keep those under wraps. But on July 15, 2015, some hackers known as the Impact Team let it be known that they had uh, taken all of the user data from this website, and they had it, and they were going to make it public if the website wasn't shut down. Well, well, around a month later, they began to release that data, and the fallout from this was serious. What was advertised as a little fun on the side turned into broken lives, even with stories of suicides connected to the revelations. What do we make of an event like this? How do we think about temptation and sin? Is sin a really big deal or is sin more of a notion left over from a bygone era in our nation's colonial history when when Puritanism had such influence? Well, these are the questions that we'll think about this morning as we continue our journey through the book of James. We'll be in James chapter 1. I'd invite you, if you don't have a Bible with you, to take a pew Bible there in front of you and turn to page 1071. The book of James was written by Jesus' half-brother James. He was a leader, a key leader in the church at Jerusalem. It was written sometime before AD 50. And James wrote to encourage believers who more than likely had been a part of the Jerusalem church that he had shepherded there in Jerusalem, but because of persecution had scattered out all over the Mediterranean world. And so he wrote to encourage his scattered flock. Let's look in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. In this text, James teaches that we should understand the deceitful nature of sin. We should understand the deceitful nature of sin, but how? How do we grasp sin's deceitful nature? Well, let's look. In verse 13, notice that temptation is a part of the Christian life. What does James say here? When you face temptation, he doesn't say if you face temptation. If you're a believer, you're going to face temptation. There's no exemptions. There's no avoiding Satan's wicked schemes. Now, in Verses 1 through 12, remember that James had dealt with the issue of trials and hardships. Now in verses 13 through 15, James addresses trials brought about by what's happening inside of us. Trials that are related to temptation. And we see a connection, of course, between the trials of life and temptation. For example, when facing difficulty, we may be tempted to doubt God. We may be tempted to drift from God and to to not trust His goodness. Or if we're in a financial bind, we might be tempted to to, to somehow steal or to try to do something that was dishonest. So temptation can give occasion for temptation, or trials can give occasion for temptation. So we know that it's true that God tests our faith. We saw that in verses 1 through 12. He tests our faith, and He he does this to strengthen our faith and to mature our faith. We we saw, uh, or we see, for example, in the Old Testament that, that... In Genesis 22, what did 
God do in regards to Abraham? He tested Abraham's faith. He said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. It was a test of faith. So James asks a question. It's a fair question. If God tests our faith, does he also tempt us? Is God responsible for the temptation in our lives? And James answers the question with absolute clarity. And his answer is absolutely not. God never tempts us. And James clarifies in verse 13, God can't be tempted by evil. Why? His nature doesn't even permit it. You see, temptations, they work because of our deficiencies, something we need, something we want. Those desires, that are, those natural desires that are, that are not necessarily wrong desires, but, but they are twisted. And temptation gives us an opportunity to fulfill them in wrong ways. But here's the deal. God is completely sufficient. He lacks nothing. He has none of those deficiencies. He is perfectly holy. And so James says God can never be tempted. And not only that, because of his nature, because of who he is, he never tempts anyone else. So our temptations can never be God's fault. That's what James wants us to understand. Evil has no allure for God and he will use He will not tempt us to to walk in evil. Now, if you go back to the days of creation, when God first created Adam and Eve, and then when Adam and Eve rejected God and and they they disobeyed, in Genesis 3.12, what did Adam do? When when God said to him, Adam, what's going on? What what did you do? Well, in Genesis 3.12, Adam told God this, the woman you gave to be with me, She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So Adam says, God, the reason that I disobeyed, well, it was that woman. It was that woman. But not just that. He didn't just blame Eve. He also really ultimately put the responsibility back onto God. Where did Adam get that woman? Well, he got that woman from God. And so Adam says, the reason I sinned, well, God, it's your fault. That's the reason that I sinned. And we are like Adam. We're like Adam. If God hadn't put me in this circumstance, I never would have done this. Or it's just who I am. It's who God made me to be. That's why I do what I do, or it's the family that God placed me in. If I hadn't been born in that family, I wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, we are like Adam. We want to blame God for our own sin and our own moral weakness, but James will have none of it. James says we alone are responsible for our sin. God will not be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. So what can we say about the deceitful nature of sin? Well, from verse 13, we recognize the inner source of temptation. We recognize the inner source of temptation. Sinful desires are from within. We cannot blame our sin on someone else. We can't blame it on God. We can't blame it on biology. We can't blame our family. We can't blame our circumstances, our own hearts. Our own hearts are inclined towards sin. What's the natural tendency of a ball? Is it the natural tendency of a ball to sit still? No, the natural tendency of a ball is to roll. What about the natural tendency of a frog? A frog's looking for water. What about a buzzard? A buzzard's looking for a carcass. What about the human heart? Well, the human heart, the natural tendency is to look for satisfaction and fulfillment in ways that that are sinful. That's our natural tendency. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, how should this truth influence our thinking and our lives? Well, first, we need to realize that the danger of sin lies within. The danger of sin lies within. This this is why monks who go to a monastery to escape evil really can't escape evil. You can go away, but the human heart's there with you. 
And this is why sometimes Christian families will say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna insulate my kids from any of the, the evil of the world. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull them in. And parents certainly need to protect their children to the degree possible from, from, from sin and, and evil. But, but this is why Christian families will sometimes say that I'm gonna wall my kids in. They're not gonna be influenced by all of that awful stuff and wicked stuff. You can wall them in. You can make the wall as high as you wanna make it. But friends, you will not keep them from evil because the evil's right here. Our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are sinful and they can deceive us. They can trick us. Next, as we think about how this applies in our lives, don't let trials turn you away from God. Don't let trials turn you away from God. I've seen singles, for example, who who genuinely loved the Lord and wanted to walk with them, but also who wanted to be married, were tired of, of being lonely. And I can think of a lady who, who after a while felt so alone that she began to date a fella who, who didn't walk with the Lord, who didn't love the Lord. And what you see is slowly, this woman who really loved the Lord begins to just sort of drift away. You know, more and more Sundays, she's not in church. Her moral standards begin to soften as she pursues this man, as she pursues this relationship. What happened was this. She gave up on obeying God because the trial that she was in, well, it placed her in a situation of loneliness. Listen, in the midst of our trials, we can't walk away from God. We must still seek him. We must still strive to to obey him and follow him. Next, avoid the temptation to blame God for your sin. Avoid that temptation. When you sin, don't try to find a way to make God responsible. You're responsible for your own sinful choices just as I am. God has nothing to do with our sinful choices. You see, you can't break away from sin and truly repent until you own your sin, until you quit blaming God and others for your sin. So to understand the deceitful nature of sin, recognize the inner source. It's right here. What else does this passage teach us about the deceitful nature of sin? Let's keep looking. In verse 14, once again, sin's roots are in the human heart. Sin isn't something that happens to us. Sin is something that happens within us. James uses the language of fishing here to describe temptation. The word that's translated in verse 14 is drawn away can, can mean to lure away. And so James paints this picture of a believer who's being lured away from God. And he uses the word enticed. And again, this is, this is fishing terminology. A fisherman puts a lure to attract a fish. And so we too, we're attracted by some external stimuli, some external opportunity. And then deep within our hearts, a hunger for what shouldn't be. Well, that hunger is stirred and kindled in our hearts. And then we want to take the bait. We, we want to get a hold of it. It looks good to us. In fact, it looks so good to us that it looks better than God. It looks better than anything God has to offer. And so we look at that bait. Oh, in our hearts, look, it would be so good. It would be so great to get a hold of this. And we begin to doubt the goodness of God. You see, the bait allures us. The bait deceives us. The message of the bait is that there's something better for you than God. And one writer said it like this, the bait blinds us to the goodness of God. We miss his goodness. The bait just seems so wonderful that we miss God. We miss his goodness. Now in these verses, notice that James never mentions Satan. He will in other places in the book, but he doesn't here. Why doesn't he? More than likely, James doesn't mention Satan, though Satan certainly has a a significant role to play in luring us away from God. 
is because James doesn't want these believers to shift blame to anyone else. He wants each of us to own our sin, not to blame anyone for our sin, but ourselves. When we can own our sin, there's hope for repentance. As long as we're shifting blame, there's not hope for repentance. There's not hope for change. So James says, our sin is ours. Now, the external bait, the external bait doesn't make us sinful. But what it does do is it reveals who we really are. When we yield to temptation, the sinful desires of our hearts, they're they're opened up, they're exposed, they're laid bare. To put it another way, these outward and alluring opportunities only draw out what's really inside of our hearts. They, They just reveal it. In verse 15, James switches analogies from fishing to childbirth. And he's, by by putting an emphasis on childbirth, he's showing the inevitability of this process of of temptation and sin. Once you start here, this is what's inevitable. This is what is going to happen unless there's something to, to, to stop it. Now, in verses 14 and 15, James lays out a process of sin. It's a clear process. Here are the steps. First, there's an external lure. There's an external opportunity to kind of get your attention. And then there's an inward desire, something within your heart that's stirred by that external lure. And then third, there's a yielding of the will. Oh, I'll, I'll go ahead and give in just this one time. It's not a big deal. Oh, this is small. Oh, so many people do so many big things. This is little. It's just so small. There's a yielding of the will. And then four, step four, sin is born at that moment. And then five, sin brings harm and sin brings death. These are the inevitable steps of the process of temptation and sin if there's not repentance somewhere in the process. And what can we say about the deceitful nature of sin? We must recognize the process of temptation and sin. We need to recognize the process. We must be aware of sin's tricky games, of of Satan's schemes and deceits. Now let's go back to the Garden of Eden and let's think about Eve in Genesis 3. God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But remember, Satan, he came to Eve and said, look, look at that fruit. You know what? If you eat that, you're going to be like God. You you should eat it. And she looked at the fruit. It looked so beautiful. It looked so appealing, so delicious. And then she ate it. So, So let's think about the steps of temptation and sin. Let's think about how they apply in Eve's situation. First, there's some external lure. It was the fruit. It was the possibility that she might gain the kind of wisdom that, that God had. But second, the fruit appealed to Eve's desires, her desires to, to, to be like God for, for something that God had prohibited. The third step, Eve yields to the temptation as she takes the fruit and eats. And we see the fourth step, sin is born at that moment. And then the fifth step, Adam and Eve's sin bring brokenness and death into the world. We see it so dramatically there in Genesis 3. But listen, friends, Satan tricks us in the very same way. He lures us away. And if the process isn't stopped, the results are devastating. The results are heartbreaking. Sin is a bit like traveling, going on a trip. If you want to take a trip to Israel, if you're going to fly on American, you're you're probably going to drive to San Antonio, get on a plane and You may fly to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then at Charlotte, you're going to catch a plane to Madrid, Spain. 
And then in Madrid, you're going to catch a plane to Tel Aviv, Israel, and you're going to find yourself in Israel after all of these stops, all of these destinations. Listen, when we allow our natural sinful desires to have their way, sin is but one stop. Sin is not the destination. It's just a stop along the way. You see, as we continue along the path of sin, as we continue along the destination of sin, taking this stop and that stop and this stop, it takes us to a place that none of us wants to go. It takes us to the destination of death. We'll explore more on that in a moment. So how should we live in light of this truth? If you don't want to go to Tel Aviv, don't board a plane. How should we live? Flee temptation. Flee temptation. If you yield to the bait, a dangerous process is set in motion. And escaping this process becomes more difficult every step that you take. So don't give in to that beautiful fruit that Satan offers you. Oh, it'll be so good. It'll be so great. And initially, sin is often like that. It seems so sweet. It seems so right. It seems so little, so insignificant. But you know the process. We, we've seen it here in James. It's never that way. No, the, the reality is that the process doesn't end with, with being small and little and beautiful. Just ask the fish. Just ask the fish. When you see the bait, no, run in the opposite direction. Don't board the plane. Stay away, get away. If you flirt with the bait, you'll find yourself being reeled in. You'll find yourself being taken in. I can think of times that the young men have said to me, well, pastor, I'm, I'm struggling with maintaining purity with my girlfriend. We, we just keep, we keep going too far. We want to honor the Lord with our relationship. So, so I, I say, well, tell me, tell me about when you're struggling. Well, she's over at my apartment and we're watching a movie. You're laying on the couch together, and next thing you know, this happens, that happens, and we, we feel brokenhearted. We don't want to do that again, and then we find ourselves doing it again. And so I say to him, so she was at your apartment or watching a movie, and you were laying on the couch together, and you, you acted impurely. Shocking. How could that happen? No, of course it would happen. You put yourself right in the middle of temptation. You boarded the plane. You can't board the plane. If you don't want to go down the the path that sin will take you down, you can't board the plane. Get off the plane. Get away. Don't go to the airport. You you understand what I'm saying? If you're a Christian couple and you aren't married, God calls you to purity. This means that you don't put yourself in compromising situations where where powerful temptation can, can pull at your heart, where it's inevitable. You shouldn't have your girlfriend laying on the couch next to you watching a movie. You shouldn't have your girlfriend staying the night. You shouldn't be moving in with each other. If you want to honor the Lord in your relationship, these things invite sin. They push you along the pathway of sin. These kinds of decisions put you right in the middle of the temptation sin uh, process. And the results aren't good. This is true in whatever area of sin. If you flirt with temptation instead of flee from it, you'll find yourself at the end of a hook and maybe in a frying pan. So don't flirt with temptation. No, flee from it. I want to say a word to parents here. Parents, we have a special responsibility to protect our kids, and it's more challenging today than before. Because of the internet and because of media, our kids have the possibility of being exposed to things we could have never even imagined. So parents, if you have devices for your kids and 
the kids have access to computers, and most certainly all of our kids do. We have to put things in place to protect them. We have to. To do otherwise is like leaving a trunk full of filth and garbage and, and all sorts of danger right there for them to open. So parents, if you don't have protection on those devices, if you don't have parental checks and controls that are, that are, that are uh, uh, robust, You've got to. If you go to our website and you look at resources, you can find online safety. You can find links to tools to help you protect your children. Parents, I plead with you, protect your children. Do you want to leave the possibility of seeing all the kind of garbage that's out there in the hands of a 12-year-old? Please don't. Help your children flee from temptation. Help them. Next, ask forgiveness and repent of sin. You want to get out of this process, this temptation sin process, then ask forgiveness and repent of your sin. How do you break free once you've given in? You stop the sin. You repent. You say, you know what? I'm not going to go to the airport. I'm going to stay out of that situation. I'm going to, I'm going to quit going there. I recognize I'm going to mess up if I go there. I'm not going to go there. So, so, so make that change. By God's grace, turn away. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to give you a heart that longs for him. Ask, you to, ask him to give you his perspective on the sin to help you see how ugly the sin really is. Ask him to help you change. Friends, God's all about helping us change when we want to get away from sin. And if you're trapped in some habitual sin, a, a, a sin that you've traveled in over and over again, I want to encourage you, get some help from a trusted Christian friend, from a pastor. Some of you are attracted Uh, are trapped in addictive behaviors that are downright dangerous. Some of you are are trapped in pornography. You're trapped in drugs. You're trapped in drinking. Yes, Satan uses these to offer so much thrill and pleasure. But in reality, he's slitting our throat. He's destroying us. Oh, friends, if you're trapped in an addictive, habitual sin, get help. Get help. Talk to a brother, a sister in Christ. I need to say this, that even in our sin, when we repent of our sin, when we turn from our sin, God is able to take the brokenness that our sin has left and he's able to restore and he's able to bring good. You know, I've heard testimonies. We've seen it in in all of our lives where God took the, the yuckiness and the awfulness of our sin and in our repentance, he brought something good and beautiful out of it. That's the miracle about God. He, he can do that. He, he can do that. So, so let's, let's repent. Let's, let's ask his forgiveness and let's get on the right track. Let's get off this, this process. Next, by God's grace, I want to say to you, you can change. By God's grace, you can change. Don't believe the lies of Satan. He tells you that you can never change. He tells you that you have no hope. But if you are in Christ, God says that you're a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's given you new life. The spirit lives inside of you. And by his spirit, you're able to change. You're able to be transformed. You can change. You can overcome sin. You can overcome habitual sin. You can overcome addictions. It's not going to be easy. And more than likely, it'll be a process. But it can happen through the power and through the, the, through the power of Christ through the blood of Christ. By God's grace, you can change. So we've seen to to understand the deceitful nature of sin, we must recognize the temptation sin process. What else does this passage teach us about sin's deceit? Well, let's keep looking in verse 15. We see that giving in to temptation eventually leads to death. 
Along the way, it may not feel like death, but that's the eventual result of, of giving in to our temptations. Now, is James talking here about physical death? We know that, that some sins can bring physical death. Issues related to, to addiction and drinking drugs, some of these can lead to death. There's diseases associated with, with impurity that can, that can lead to death. But James has something more broad in mind here. In Jewish thinking, death wasn't seen necessarily as just a destination, but it was seen as a way of life. For example, in Deuteronomy 30, 19, the word says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. In other words, walk with God. His ways bring life and blessing. So when we choose to sin, we're choosing the way of death. We're we're choosing to bring difficulty and brokenness into our lives. It's the trajectory of our lives. So by choosing sin, the the Israelites were choosing a death-like life, one that's characterized by pain, one that's characterized by heartache, rather than the kind of abundant life that Christ brings. So to give in to temptation gives birth to sin. And sin will grow. And James says here that it'll give birth to a life that is death-like. A life that's death-like. Like a shattered mirror with shards of glass laying everywhere. Or trash overflowing, overflowing, never taken out. A life marked by sin isn't pleasant. It's a life of pain and brokenness. The painful realities of sin and the stench of unrepentance, those are the characteristics of this life. It may be a life marked by bitterness or it may be marked by broken relationships or by the weight of guilt and shame. But make no mistake, the pains and the scars of unrepented of sin can make life feel just like death. They can make death seem preferable. So what can we say about the deceitful nature of sin? We must recognize the awful consequences of sin. We must recognize the awful consequences of sin. James says that this death-like life is the final stage in this temptation-sin progression. And its results are absolutely disastrous. It leaves behind carnage and pain. Think of a graphic scene in a military movie. Well, that's what sin does in our lives. It just rips us and shreds us. So sin and its deception seems to offer you the world but its consequences, friends, are hellish. They are hellish. God loves you and he desires to spare you from the pains and the heartaches of sin. Now, let me say a word about this. In our day, we're, our culture is striving so much to redefine sin, to take what the Bible calls sin and to say it's really not sin. And people are said to be loving if they do this. It's loving to redefine sin and to say, well, this is not sin. You like to do that. It's not sin. But friends, I want to say to you, the most unloving thing we can do to someone is to say to them that what God says is sin is not sin. There's no love there at all. Because what we're saying to a person is we're saying to them, just take the knife and slit your own wrist. We're saying to people, do what will destroy you, do what will harm you. So when people say, pastor, you're unloving, you're cruel, I say to them, friends, I'm giving you the words of life, the words that protect, the words that bring life. For us to call something not sin, that God calls sin, is to hurt people, it's to harm people. It is the most unloving thing we can do. No, we must gently and lovingly tell the truth the way the Bible tells it. Because there, 
we give people true hope, real life, not lies, but true hope, real life. You see, God wants to rescue us from the consequences of sin. God wants to save us from experiencing all the pain that it can bring. For a while again, it seems fun, but it's never real. No. God has given us his word and his word guides us in how we should live. His word guides us in what will be a blessing to us and what will harm us. And God's desire is that we avoid the landmines of sin and that we get to know him more and love him more and experience joy and life in him. There's a familiar story of the Inuit people uh, who, who hunted for wolves. It's helpful here as we think about sin and, and the consequences that sin can bring. The Inuits were, were once called Eskimos, folks living in the, the coldest regions of the world. The story is told of how the Inuits hunted for wolves, how they would take a, a, a knife and they would, they would dip the, the blade in blood and the blood would freeze and they would dip it again and dip it again and then they would secure the knife firmly and then all they had to do was wait a while because the scent of that blood would offer some wolf an easy meal. The wolf, so the story goes, would come and begin to lick the blade. Oh, and there was... There was a meal there, an easy meal, but in the process, the wolf never realized that he was destroying his own life, that he was consuming himself. It was a lie, but the wolf didn't know it. And friends, this is a picture of sin. This is a picture of how sin operates in our lives. We destroy our own lives by our our sinful choices. We blow ourselves up. We destroy our own joy and well-being and peace by the sinful choices that we make so often. So how should this reality change the way that we live? Well, first, no matter how good it looks, never, sin never, ever delivers what it promises. Sin never delivers what it promises. So that lady who isn't your wife, who seems so attractive, so kind, so understanding, don't you believe it for a minute. It's a lie fooling around with your your boyfriend or your girlfriend, even though you aren't married, why, it's no big deal. Don't be so prudish. Don't be so Victorian. After all, you're you're planning to be married soon enough, right? Don't buy that. Don't don't take the bait. God's got a better plan for you, a plan that'll lead to your joy, not your pain. If you continue in this path of rejecting God, rebelling against God, pain's ahead. Death is ahead. At the end of these promises lies broken hearts with deep wounds of shame and regret, lies dead marriages, dead relationships, despair, fear, worry, shame, regret. You you could list the kinds of brokenness that our sin brings. But God doesn't want us to experience those things. That's why he calls us to walk with him to know him, to love him. So get out of the, te- the sin temptation process now. Get out now by doing whatever it takes. Suppose you walk into the woods and you see a rattlesnake. Do you bend down and pet it? Of course not. You'd never be so foolish. But if you're giving in to temptation and sin, you're doing the very thing. What's God's counsel to you? Stop, get away, do whatever it takes to get out of this temptation, sin, death process. If you're in an inappropriate relationship, break it off. If you're glued to filth on a screen, get a flip phone. Get rid of the computer. Get accountability. Put some, some, so, some, some software accountability or, or filtering software. Do whatever it takes, but get out of that path. Get out of that process. 
If you're dancing on the edge with drinking, it's time to quit. If you're messing around with drugs, it's time to leave them behind. If you're fooling around with someone who isn't your spouse or with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, make a change now. Make a change now. Take whatever steps are necessary to walk in purity. Perhaps even ending the relationship. Do whatever it takes to get out of that process. You can't coddle a rattlesnake. Friends, you can't coddle sin. If you're staying on the road of death, the word to you this morning is danger, danger, danger. Wake up. God is trying. He's trying to to get our attention this morning. He's trying to rescue us from that path. Won't you heed the word? I plead with you, get off the road that leads to death. Now, some sin isn't nearly so obvious or blatant as the examples that I've used this morning. But make no mistake, this sin, all sin still brings death. Our anger, our out-of-control anger, wounds and destroys. Our unforgiveness festers into hateful bitterness. Our pride leads us to treat other people who are made in the image of God as small and insignificant. And the list could go on and on and on. You see, all sin, yes, all sin slices and dices. All sin leaves bruises and gashes in our own lives and in the lives of others. So get out. Ask God to help you change. Seek his strength to obey. Next, as we think about applying this truth, we need to realize that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. By urging us to flee from sinful temptation, God isn't trapping us like kids trapped in a house on a rainy day. He's not trying to make us miserable. No, he's trying to rescue us. He's trying to give us the best life that we can have. He's trying to call us into a close relationship with him where he gives us life and joy and peace, where he satisfies our deepest longings, where he satisfies the cravings of our heart. Oh, following him, knowing him, loving him. This is the way of joy. This is the way of peace. Yes, this is the way of life. Friend, if you give up sin, you're not losing anything, but you're gaining everything. Now, in Six Flags at Dallas, there's a roller coaster called Runaway Mountain. Maybe some of you have have rode that ride, but what makes this roller coaster unique is that it's an indoor coaster. Every, the, the ride is painted black inside and it is pitch black. There are no lights. So inside of the structure, you ride this roller coaster. When the ride begins, you have no idea where you're going. You have no idea if you're fixing to be turned upside down or you're going to take a quick fall. You just don't know where the roller coaster is going to take you and sin is like this. It's going to be a fun ride perhaps at first but you don't really know exactly where you're going to end up. It's been said that sin will take you further than you ever planned to go. Sin will keep you longer than you ever planned to stay. And sin will cost you more than you had ever planned to pay. You see, in the middle of the ride, when it seems so fun, you just don't know. You don't know where you're going to end up. So I want to ask you this morning, have you jumped on the runaway mountain roller coaster of sin? Are you right in the middle of the ride? It seems so great, so fun, so wonderful. You're not sure where you're going to go, but hey, it's great, it's fun. Friend, the place that coaster takes you, you don't want to go. The cost will be extraordinarily high. Because while you may not know where you're going in the midst of it, the Bible's very clear where you end. The final stop is death, it's pain. It's heartache, but God promises life. 
So understand the deceptive nature of sin. It originates in our hearts. It takes us on a deadly progression away from God. The destination is always death in one way or another. If you know Jesus, how should you respond to the message this morning? Well, ask God to help you see how great he is, how how incredible knowing him is. Because what's the greatest way to get away from sin? It's to see God, to recognize that he's better, that knowing him's more attractive than whatever Satan could offer us. So ask God to help you want to know him, to love him, to help you get off the temptation sin path. Jesus is so much better, so much greater. Have you made mistakes? Do you have regrets? Do you feel the weight of your guilt pressing down on you? Oh, friend, God offers forgiveness. God offers forgiveness. Ask him for forgiveness. Some of you are here and you don't know the Lord Jesus. You never began a relationship with him. Do you know that Jesus can forgive you? He can cleanse you. He can wipe away all your sins. He can throw your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's what the psalmist says. He can give you a fresh start, a new life. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's what he's offering you. He's offering you a chance to be completely forgiven, a fresh slate. How can you you receive this gift of new life? Well, this is how you call out to him and you say to Jesus, I'm sorry I've sinned. I've gone my own way. I don't want to do that anymore. And I believe in you. I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried, and that you were raised to life. I believe that about you. And I want to follow you. And if you call out to God and you say, please forgive me, I believe in you and I want to follow you and you mean it, he picks you up and he washes you clean. Yes, white as snow. And you've got a new start. And even as you stumble and fall, he'll keep forgiving you. He'll keep working with you. This morning, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, why would you refuse? Why would you say no to the grace that's offered you in Christ, to the new life that Christ would give? This morning, I plead with you, if you don't know him, please, please turn to him in faith. Join me in prayer.